we began this series, gosh, two months, a month and a half ago called Different. And one of the things that we've been talking about in this series is, is that emotional health and spiritual health are deeply intertwined. And many of you have, have talked to me about what that's been like for you as you've discovered the ways that you react in emotion and, and, and what this has done for you. And Pete Scazzaro, I've, I've referenced this a number of times, but I like the quote, so I keep saying it, uh, which is what pastors do, right? So uh, Pete Scazzaro says that you cannot be spiritually healthy if you're emotionally unhealthy. And we think that the church generally does a pretty good job of spiritual health. But as far as emotional health goes, we tend to gloss over it and, and not really pay too much attention, right? And so what we're doing in this series is aiming at, looking, at becoming more emotionally healthy so that we can become more spiritually healthy. And so what, what I didn't know, whenever we sensed that God was calling us and leading us into this series, what I didn't know is just how critical this stuff was going to be, right? We knew that, that COVID was a thing, but the, the, the stuff over the last two weeks has really driven emotion. Have you seen that? Have you seen that kind of in your friend group and in your, your social media feed, how much emotion is happening right now? And can I just say, the world needs the church of Jesus Christ to be emotionally healthy, to bring the reality of the kingdom to bear in the places that we live. Wouldn't you agree? That so much noise happens. And last week I talked about what it looks like to have just a, a very on-purpose kingdom response. But, but the church needs to, to stand up and bring to bear the reality of the kingdom in situations like this that are emotionally overwhelming. Now, we've spent a few weeks talking about our particular responses. You guys have, I, I've loved hearing from you about the way that you notice your responses. You know, the, the way that you find yourself in conflict and in distance and over-functioning, under-functioning and triangling. And I, I hope as we've talked about this, you've kind of probably seen yourselves uh, do this? Has it, has it created new awareness for you? Anybody created new awareness of like, I see myself in situations and all I want to do is those things. Well, what I want to do today is, what do, I want to talk about what do I do when I recognize the anxiety that I feel? What do I do with that? How do I use what I'm aware of now to become healthier? And if you wouldn't mind, turn with me to John chapter 7. And we're going to read, there's new challenges being outside, like that. I love the breeze, but uh, paper, paper blows in the breeze. John chapter 7, here's, here's this is Jesus uh, going to the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so here's what it says. It says, after this, Jesus went around to Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. 
Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time has not yet, is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who speaks, or he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. I want to take a look at this from the perspective of, of the situation that Jesus finds himself in. You know, up to this point, Jesus has been performing miracles and doing all kinds of things uh, that testify to the kingdom. He's turned water into wine. That's a cool one. I mean, try that at a party sometime. He's fed, he's multiplied food to feed thousands. He's healed people. But the thing that Jesus does over and over and over that gets under people's skin is that he seems to break the rules. Jesus breaks the rules all the time. He heals people on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders just don't like it. What Jesus has been doing is changing how the system works. And if I can just say, as we think about emotional health, any time you come against the way the system works, there's resistance. Any time you change the way your family works, any time you show up as somebody other than who they expect you to be, the system changes and what you find is resistance. So as we get to chapter 7, we come to this exchange, which is a fairly tense situation, if you didn't catch it. And in case you missed it, look again at verse 3. It says this, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. His brothers didn't believe in him. And what they do is they try to get Jesus to show up as somebody other than he intends to be. Did you catch that? Like, what they try to get him to do is they press on him to try to get him to cave to be what they want him to be. Any of you ever feel that way? You show up in a place and people expect you to be a certain way, and what do they do? They push on you, right? You need to be the kind of person I want you to be, right? You've experienced that, right? And as we've talked about this, they basically go on ratcheting up the anxiety in the situation. They're like, come on. You know, you're, you're this miracle guy. You want to be a public figure, right? 
stop doing this stuff in secret. Let's go, let's go on up and, and, and do this in public so you can get a following because that's what we expect. If you're going to be the Messiah, if you're actually this guy that you claim to be, well, then you need to go do it the way that we expect. You need to go be a political leader that does things in public so you get a big following. And what we've talked about in the past few weeks is that in anxious situations, people respond in a handful of predictable ways, right? I get anxious, and I go find somebody else to triangle in. Hey, I, 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 can you believe what he just told me I had to do? Can you believe it? Or you have Jesus, can you imagine, like, coming against them, like, well, uh, this, them's fighting words, or just running away from people, or, or, or over-functioning or under-functioning. Frequently, anxiety shows up in a challenge to your identity. That's what causes anxiety in us, is a challenge to the identity, to the narrative that we believe we're living, that somebody comes against it. And that's what's happening here with Jesus. He has a certain way that he wants to do things as a Messiah. He wants to do things the way that he wants to do them, but everyone else wants him to be somebody else. Everybody else wants him to be the big political leader that, that, that rises to power that we can all follow him. And he just, he just shirks that every turn. You know, this happens to all of us, right? Each of us live our lives out of some narrative, out of some story that we believe about ourselves, or some, some identity that we own about ourselves. And we use that to evaluate situations that we find ourselves in don't we? Well, you know, I'm a teacher. That means these things. This is the story that I live. I'm a pilot. It's these things. This is the story that I live. I live out of a certain identity. You know, your narrative is a mixture of your experiences, your upbringing, the interactions that you have with people, you know, the, the pressures that you feel in your relationships. Of course, your education the way God has worked in your life, the experiences that you've had of God, their spiritual practices, all of these come together to form some narrative that you live out of, some identity that you hold. They all form the story and they form an identity for us. As long as nothing changes or upsets the narrative, right? All is good. Here's the thing, and you guys, you guys can probably look at your lives and see this, this is why we like hanging out with people that are like us, right? If you are a Republican, you like hanging out with Republicans because we all think alike, right? Nervous laughter. Yeah, that's <laughs> totally fair. Totally fair. If, if you're a Democrat, you love hanging out with Democrats because we speak the same language, don't we? We, as Christians, we love hanging out with other Christians. Why? Because we get each other. We're living from the same story, right? We're union people. We all union people. We're the same, right? This is why we like hanging out with people who are like us, because there's never a challenge to the story. There's never a challenge to the narrative, right? We can go around happy and carefree so long as nobody confronts the stuff in our lives. And yet, Jesus doesn't really desire that for us, right? He's constantly confronting us and confronting the things about our lives. 
as soon as something confronts the narrative that we live, anxiety comes up, doesn't it? Can I point out how that works just over the past two months? We live in a nation that believes in freedom. We also believe, or we live in a society that likes to take all of the risk out of everything we do, right? Like, that's what we do. We take all the risk, and all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, we were locked in our houses and fearful. This is confronting the narrative that we believe as Americans, that everything we do is safe and that we're free to do whatever we want. And what happens? I mean, you guys, it just boils over, doesn't it? Like, we get anxious, and we start to, like, vibrate inside and I start talking about these people and I start talking about those people and I'm going to go confront the people, you know, I mean, got to be careful with all the protest stuff going on, but I'm going to go protest the government for locking me in my house. It's the narrative that we've lived out of and the confrontation of it that causes the anxiety. For many of us, the past two weeks has done the same thing, right? For many of us, we've lived a certain narrative. Maybe the narrative is that racism is something that is past. We dealt with it. You know, we did the 60s thing. We did the protest thing. It was all done. This is the narrative that we've lived. And seeing all of these things over the past two weeks confronts the narrative that we've believed. And what does it do? It stirs anxiety inside of us, doesn't it? Any of you find yourself extra anxious over the past two weeks? Right? And here's the thing about anxiety, is it's cumulative. So if we have COVID, comes up a little bit. We have the past two weeks, it comes up a little bit. Maybe things at work aren't going so well. Maybe I can't find a job. Maybe my marriage is struggling. And anxiety just goes up, up, up. And you ever hear about the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? A lot of times the anxiety that causes you to trigger and go over the top is something pretty small. They didn't have milk. They didn't have milk. Can you believe they were out of milk? And people go, that's a level 10 response for a level one problem. Right? But you've seen this in yourself, haven't you? Other people have seen it in you. <laughs> you don't see it in yourself. Everybody else sees it in you. Why was I so angry about the fact that the grocery store was out of milk? Right? That's how it works. The anxiety of the situation keeps coming up. It's always a confrontation to the narrative that we believe. How angry did you get when the grocery store shelves were empty and we're a land of plenty? Bothered you probably. Some of you bothered you a little bit, right? This is what happens. And maybe you weren't aware that this was the case, but the things that we notice about ourselves is we're a little extra confrontational. We're a little extra hair triggered to run away from people, right? We're a little bit extra close to cutting people out of our lives, right? How many people have you dropped off of your Facebook feed? You don't have to answer. You, you don't have to. Everybody was like, oh, he knows. Right? They've given you that. For you, those of you who don't know, they've given you this nice little option. Now you can just block people. 
that's a way to cut off without telling people you're cutting off. That's not, that's not healthy, but you do what you want to do. But if we add all of these things up, what's challenging is to stay connected to people while remaining ourselves, right? We always feel like everyone around us wants to make us just like them. We have to agree with them. We have to believe the things they believe. We have to feel the same way about protests as they feel about protests. We have to feel the same things. And if we don't, we're a jerk. But at the same time, we, we also need to remain ourselves, right? But we need to stay connected to the community. There's this tension that we live in between staying connected and being defined. And have you ever noticed that tension inside yourselves? But when you find yourself full of anxiety, what this is telling you is that your identity has been confronted. And here's the, the beautiful thing about knowing that, is if you know that's what's happening, you can evaluate the identity that you live out of. This is a gift of God. If anxiety comes up and you are aware that your identity has been confronted, it's a gift of the Lord that you get to say, God, what's the, identity, what's the narrative I'm living that makes me so stressed out about this? Why do I all of a sudden want to go off because they're out of milk? What's the identity that I'm living out of? And secondly, God, is that an identity you want me to have? Because God has created us to be a certain kind of people, a different kind of people. And our narrative's been shaped by a lot of things, right? We don't just have, you know, we'd like, I would love it if we all surrendered our lives to Jesus and we were just in an instant changed, right? Any of you that way? Any of you in an instant changed? You all already look like Jesus? Already living out of the narrative that God is, is the kingdom has come and that you, uh, that, that you are a new creation. Any of you struggle with that? Struggle with living that identity? Because all of our narratives have been formed and shaped by a lot of things. Some of you have, been, have had your identity shaped and formed by a parent who left you when you were a kid, that you feel abandoned, and you live your whole life trying to grab on to people to make sure that they, this never happens again to me. Some of you have been hurt by somebody. When you were growing up, somebody abused you, and you live your whole life holding people at arm's length so that nobody will ever do this to me again, right? Some of us, we've, we've, I'm, tell, I'm just telling you, all of our narratives have been shaped by something. Maybe your, your, your narrative was shaped by poverty, and you see the way that you react in situations. Your expectation is there will never be enough. Maybe it's been shaped by d uh, discouragement or great loss. Maybe you lost a parent when you were young, and your narrative has been shaped by that. All of us have lived out of narratives that, that we've had shaped for our whole lives. My personal narrative has been shaped by feeling like people thought I was stupid. That's my, this is like, you know, confession time, right? That's what, this is the way everybody does confession with a microphone and speakers and the internet. My narrative was shaped when I was in third grade. I was part of a, a gifted class and I was removed from the gifted class. Seemingly nobody fought for me. 
and put me in a normal class. Some of you go, oh, come on, cry about it. Seriously. I lived from that moment believing that everyone around me thought I was stupid. Everyone around me believed that I was stupid. And so some of you have seen my office and have seen the amount of books that I have. The way that I've compensated for this shaped narrative is that I'm not ever going to let somebody think I'm stupid, right? So I'm going to study, I'm going to read, I'm going to analyze, I'm going to know the ins and outs of everything. Do you know how much of my life I've wasted learning things about things I'll never use? Like, I mean, Jerry and I have had this conversation before, but I've wasted an inordinate amount of time learning about HVAC. I have no intention to get into HVAC, but I know a lot about it. I know a lot about plumbing. I've done a little bit, but I've learned a whole lot of things. And the, the thing that has shaped my narrative is that I believe people are going to think I'm stupid. And so I'm going to prevent that from happening. Here's what it looks like when you do that. Everywhere I go, I have to be the smartest one in the room. I don't tell you that. That's the pressure I live with internally. And so when somebody else gets accolade, I go, wait, 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 wait. You don't know what I did. I did stuff too. I'm smart. I run off friends that way. I spent a lot of time walling off people who are smarter than me just so that I don't feel less than. This is all new revelation to me. I'm just sharing this uh, to, to give you a picture. So whenever I find myself in a situation where I could be perceived as stupid, I get super anxious, super anxious. I don't want to do anything until I know everything there is to know about it for fear that I might mess up. And I live my life super anxious all the time. My tendency is to confront people. If I feel like you're calling me stupid, or, and it's not that people even do that really. But if I perceive that you're belittling me or calling me stupid or a failure, I confront you or I overfunction. I'm going to do everything for everybody so that you can see I'm super competent and super capable. What's the point? This is not a narrative that God put in me, and it's not a narrative that God intends that I live out of. When your identity gets challenged, you have an opportunity to bring it before the Lord and ask him, is this something you intend me to live out of? Is this who you created me to be? Hold it before the Lord and ask him what he wants you to do with it. In fact, if you react before you do anything like that, you actually run the risk of doing at least two things. First of all, you miss an opportunity for God to shape your identity. Do you know how long I've been living out of this false narrative of my life? 30 years. That's a really long time. For 30 years I've done this. And if you react before you hold the thing that you've become aware of before the Lord, the first thing you miss is an opportunity for God to say, that's not who I created you to be. Do you know who I've created you to be? This is who I've created you to be. You miss that opportunity if you react first. For, for so many years, I missed the opportunity for God to demonstrate his love for me, independent of anything that I do. Whether I'm smart or stupid, he loves me. 
I've lived that way for a long time. And I'll bet you some of you are living out of a narrative that you have not yet let God demonstrate his love for you in. I'll bet that's true of most of us. The second thing that you run a risk of doing is you run the risk of ruining a relationship. How many of you know this one? Your reaction forever alters a relationship you're in. And the reaction really was just driven because they confronted your identity and your narrative. But it's never going to be the same again. You said some things, you did some things, and it will never, ever come back again. You know, so often the problems that I become aware of, the false narrative, the false identity that I live out of, is not anything God needs me to tell somebody else about. Most of the time, God's not saying, I need you to go confront that person. Most of the time, what God is saying is, hey, why don't you come back to me? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about why you react that way. That's most of what I've experienced. Sometimes God says, okay, now that we've had this conversation, now I want you to go talk to that person. And that happens. But so much of what's wrong in my life really is my fault. (laughs) I know that's a surprise to you. But so much of the narrative that I've lived out of is not somebody else's fault. It's really my fault and, and my, my reaction instead of spending time with the Lord with it. So this is an invitation. If you're, if you're married, for you married people, this works there too. Before you identify a problem that you need to fix in your spouse, it's probably a really good idea to go to the Lord with it. Some of you know this. Some of you, this is new information. <laughs> If you're married, before you confront a problem in your spouse, you should go ask God what he thinks about it. Because sometimes God uses the problems that you have with your spouse to drive you back to him. And it's not so much a problem with your spouse as it is a problem with you. So we begin to see our anxiety as an invitation to hold before the Lord the identity that we're living out of, the story that we're living out of. And this is going to be true until Jesus returns. I mean, that's good news and bad news. You'll get better, but it keeps going until Jesus returns. So how does Jesus respond? Let's take a look at how Jesus responds to the anxiety and the situation in our story. He doesn't do what his brothers tell him to do. He stays present in the situation without giving up self. Look at verse 16. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. How's Jesus able to stay present in this super anxious situation? How does he hang out and not react? Because he knows that he knows that he knows that what he's doing is what God has asked him to do. How do you stay present in an anxious situation? By knowing that you know that you know that you're doing what God has asked you to do. When you begin to notice your anxiety rising, you may have to take some drastic steps, especially if you are new to this awareness. You may have to get off the computer before you respond. 
right? Super anxious on Facebook. I should probably not respond right now. Somebody sends me an email that makes me very, very angry. I should probably not respond right now. I should take a drastic step back. Maybe you have to, in the midst of a situation that gets really heated, you have to go, can I just take a time out for a minute and walk away so that I can be who I think God intends me to be? You may have to take some drastic steps, but here's the hope. The hope is that you would be secure enough in the identity that God has given you that you could stay 100% present in the anxiety that you feel without reacting. That's the hope. That's the way that we ought to live life. That's how Jesus lives life. And the only way that happens is by allowing our narrative and our identity to be shaped by God. That every other false narrative, every other false identity that we live out of gets laid down and we understand who we are. Friends, I know that I've said this like every week in this series, but there really is no way to become different people until your identity has changed. There really is no way. You can white knuckle it. We can pretend like, you know, I didn't punch that person and see how good I was, right? And celebrate the wins, obviously. If you didn't hit somebody, I'm pretty proud of you. It's not a good thing. But until the narrative changes, we're not going to become different people. And the only way we do that is we put ourselves in a position for God to heal and shape us. Listen, your anxiety should drive you back to your devotional life. What would it look like in your life if you took the anxiety that you experienced and you said, hold on, I'm going to sit with Jesus for a minute and see what he has to say. What would it look like if your anxiety drove you back to devotional life? At his baptism, Jesus uh, heard these words from God spoken over him. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Over and over and over through Jesus' life, he withdraws to pray. At the Mount of Transfiguration, God again says, this is my son. Listen to him. These things aren't nice additions to the story. They're the only way that Jesus is able to do the things that God has put him here to do. The same is true for us. If Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, needed these things to live life, what makes you think that you and me can do it any other way? At some level, this whole series is one long infomercial for time with the Lord. But shouldn't we be people who are marked by time with the Lord? Shouldn't that make us distinct people? You know, I've been living out of this false narrative that I told you about for 30 years, and as the consequence, I've sought validation from people all the time for 30 years. Validation that God should be the only one who's, who's able to give to me. And I became aware of this during the quarantine. I don't know about you, but quarantine was really, really good for me. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But I can't take it back now, so there. But quarantine made me aware that I've been living out of a wound for 30 years and seeking validation that only God can give from people. But here's what happened when I became aware of that. And since I've become aware of that, God has given me frequent attempts to confront the narrative that I've lived out of. I've had lots and lots and lots of opportunity 
to be present in anxiety where normally I would seek validation from somebody else, where normally I would be tempted to react because I feel stupid and I don't like it. But here's what I've learned. I've learned that I have a father in heaven who loves me. That it doesn't matter how stupid I feel. It doesn't matter how stupid people think I am. That there is a father in heaven who loves me before I ever do anything. Before I get up in the morning, before I go put one leg in, fr- in, in the pants and another leg in the pants and get going. Before I show up and prepare a message. Before I take my first step of being a parent. Before I try to be a good husband. Before I try to go work. God loves me. I have a father who loves me. And do you know what that means? That means everything else is different. It doesn't matter if you think I'm stupid. My father doesn't. It changes everything. I've learned that God only asks me to do a few things. And when I do the things that God asks me, no matter what people think, I don't have to seek their approval. When God asks me to do something, all I do is that thing. And because he asked me to do it, the results are up to him. And I know we say that, but it's a whole other thing when you understand it. If you only do the things God asks you to do, when there's accolade to be had, when there's congratulations, they don't really belong to you. When there's hate and anger and people get upset with you and want to call you names, they don't really belong to you. I don't have to allow my identity and my humanness, humanness. That's a, I'm just making up words, man. Just making them up. Somebody write them down. They'll go in the dictionary. I, it doesn't matter. My father loves me. And so regardless of what people think of me, I can stand in anxiety in an increasing way. Over the past two months, I am learning to stand in anxiety knowing that my value and my worth is not dependent on what you think of me. It really doesn't matter. What matters is that I know my father loves me. Every day I get up and I sit and I wait for my father to tell me that he loves me before I do anything. And it's one of the sweetest times. That's available to all of us. Do you know that? That it doesn't matter what your dad was like, whether he was there or not, whether he was kind or not, that you have a father in heaven who loves you. And that changes everything about how you interact with anxiety. Everything. I found freedom in becoming a slave to my father. I found freedom. And it's available to all of us. This is God's desire for your life. Is that you would live out of freedom from what other people think of you. That you would be able to sit present in anxiety because you know that the results of the anxiety are not dependent on you. That's freedom. If you're not sure how to get started, I would love to talk to you about that. 
If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, that's the first step. When I say that I became a slave to my father, it's the most joyous thing I can ever imagine. I'm not dependent. I don't have to create anything. He says, okay, let's do this. And then I just do it. It's simple. What would it look like if we were people that lived this way? What would it look like? I mean, you guys have been telling me this for years, years. We love you as well. I love you as well. You guys have been telling me this for years. The love of the Father changes everything about the way you live life. What would it look like if we were a community of people who lived our lives knowing that we had a Father who loved us? What would that look like? I think it'd change the world. I think we'd be able to sit in a whole lot of really uncomfortable situations. We find ourselves in those situations anyway, right? And I think we'd be able to transform the world because the power of Jesus would just flow from us. Can you imagine? 